Hey everybody, what's going on? I'm Trevor Noah. I'm David Kibuka. And we are so excited to bring you this episode of the Trevor Noah podcast from Luminary. This one is from our first season of the podcast, but I think it's a good time to share it. For more episodes of the Trevor Noah podcast, check out Luminary, a subscription podcast network with original shows you won't find anywhere else. We have dozens of episodes up on Luminary right now, plus all new conversations coming September 2nd. So sign up and start listening with a seven-day free trial at luminary.link slash trevanoah. Not available in all markets. Terms apply. From Luminary Media, this is On Second Thoughts with Trevor Noah. I'm Trevor Noah, joined as always by my good friend, David Kibuka. What's going on, Dave? What's happening, Trevor? It is uh, Spicy Friday. We tape on Sundays, as our second thoughters know, but it's Friday today, so we're going to bring that Friday energy. Oh, yes. I feel like this is the exact same energy that you have on a Sunday. The only thing that changes your sunglasses, which I still don't understand why you wear them when we are inside a studio. Because it's Friday. Yeah, oh, you, yes. But you wear sunglasses on Sunday. But that's a mistake. <laughs> What do you do on a weekend, Dave? Me? Yeah. I've never asked you this. I don't know what you do on a weekend. I go to the library. Like, what do you mean? I go to the New York library every weekend. Are you being serious? Yes, I am serious. Do you go inside it or do you just walk to it? I go inside it. I love the library. A library is a place where if you decide you want to do something that involves reading, let's say. Yes, which makes sense. Yes, because it's a library. You are forced to do it because everybody else is doing it. You can't just... It's not Starbucks. Yeah, you can't just change your mind. You're there. There's just that attitude. And if you do, like sometimes when you're in the library... It's sort of like a gym. Yes. A library is a gym for reading. Because when you go to the gym, even if you don't really want to work out, everyone is working out around you. People just like, you know what I mean? Grunting in the corner. And then if you take too long, someone's going to come and be like, excuse me, man, are you done with that? And you have to be like, no, I'm not done. And then you you feel the pressure now. You got to like lift the things. Yes. People are also watching you. And then your technique and everything. So it's the same thing in the library with reading. You like someone's gonna come and be like, "Excuse me, are you done with that encyclopedia?" Then you're like, "I'm, I'm not done. I've just discovered that the durian fruit yes. is commonly um, referred to as the greatest fruit in the world." You know what the interesting thing about the library is? They have these massive reading rooms, these beautiful ones in in the New York Public Library, and then they have these smaller ones. And there's one that only has maps. So I first went there because I thought that this was, I mean, no one is going to come into a library that has just maps. Who wants to just look at maps? Right. And there's heavy traffic of people coming to look at maps. Have these people never heard of Google? I don't know. Literally, I don't know. So There was a man There was a man today, you may have heard him, as we were walking into the studio, and he said, excuse me, fellas, do you know where Jay's laundry is? Then I was like, my, my man, it's 2019. Yeah, it is that. And I'm not... I, when people ask me a question like that, I always think I'm about to be pickpocketed. Yes. I don't engage any conversation with any human being in the street who asks me where something is. In 2019, nobody needs to ask anybody else where something is, unless their phone is dead. If somebody said, hi, my phone died, and I don't know how to get somewhere, then I trust or you. Or if they're tourists, because sometimes, I don't it's, care. sometimes it's expensive, you aren't on roaming, oh, okay, 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 you get okay. that $5,000 okay. okay, that's you true. Okay, that's true. But if you're just an American person in America or a British person in Britain, South Africa, and then you say, excuse me, could you help me to find... No, you want to find my wallet or my phone? Please step away from me. Yes. So what do you read at the library? I generally take my own books. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's let's go back. Let's go back. Wait. So you BYOB 
to a library. Yeah. I, I Firstly, I don't want to take out a book from the library because I'm an immigrant on a visa. So there's any infringement can just go against you. So you think they'll deport you for a book? I don't think they'll deport me for a book, but they'll add that to the thing that they're actually deporting me for. So As those extra ones. <laughs> we're just going to throw this in as a personality thing. Char- thing character said, witness. Yes, character and witness. And also... Objection. That has nothing to do with it. But then people will be like... The jury The jury will disregard yes. the fact that David he, has never returned a book to the New York yes, Library. But the a, jury cannot disregard that. He took a Bible from 1750. He has not brought it back. Yes. Objection. That's got nothing to do with this. Then what will people do? They will Even deport people you. who are no, not the, religious no, will, will be deport like... You. Who takes a Bible from 17? I would deport you. So, so you so you take your own books yes. from your home. From home. And then you go to the library. Yes. Which is not next to your home. No. The, and now again, now again. You're making me sound crazy. I'm not trying to make you sound anything, Dave. <laughs> but, I'm, I'm just drawing a picture for our listeners. Yes. So they may fully grasp the gravity of the situation. So in essence, you're almost like a person who goes to Equinox Gym. Yes. Bringing your own weights in no. a backpack. No, no. Why not? That's wrong. Please tell me why you bringing your books is not like bringing weights to the gym. Because the one of the primary reasons I go to the library yes. is so that I can actually read. Yes. Because if I'm one not... One of the primary reasons I go to the gym is so I can actually work out. Yes. So so if they had the book that I was reading... You're saying they don't have it at the New York no, Library? No, 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 no. The library, the big one, is beautiful and it's, it's reading rooms and it's grandiose things and the books there are not for just taking out. They know... You're going to take it out and bring it back with KFC, like, um, stains. stains on it. No, no, no. They, you go there, you open it, you look at the things you want to look there mainly, and then you... Then you leave. Yes. Now, when I go to the library, because it's away from where I live, right? it forces me to read. And then the great thing about the library is when we're inside the library, there's a certain culture... You know, because there's a shh culture that's in the library. Mm -hmm. And there's some still lawless people there. But lawlessness in a library is very different to lawlessness in normal life. You aren't allowed to show your drinks. Like, you can't put water on a table. You may have it. And then you certainly cannot eat. Okay. But then you do get these bad boys who try and eat like, you know, like a chip or something. Yes. And the crunch reverberates through the entire... One, but they don't crunch because they also, they don't want to be thrown out. They suck. They do a thing because they're not, you can't, don't crunch because then you, that guy will throw you out, the main guy. But then what happens with me, and I feel a lot of people are having, is for some reason, I'm like, you're not allowed to eat chips here. And I become this weird policeman. It's like calling 911 kind of vibe. You, you feel like You that. want to permit patty them. I, I don't know whether I want to permit patty them, but I'm in a situation now. Hmm. Because I'm looking at the guard. He sometimes is far. Yes. Then this rogue person is busy confidently eating chips. Who comes to the library to eat chips? <laughs> why are you? Why? Who are you? What I'm loving most about this is just the idea that you are so paranoid of the infringement of taking a book that you that you bring your own books to the library because now I'm imagining I'm picturing you like in court being arrested for not bringing a book back I won't be arrested for not bringing a book back I'm saying you could be maybe you could be you never know America they could be like like the, the fine is so extensive that now you're going to prison and then like that's you as Dave have you ever been to prison have you been arrested let's start with that I've never been arrested what do you mean you've never been arrested you've never been like the police have never put you in handcuffs in any way shape or form a person like me 
a person of such high standing. David, in South Africa. Yes. You're going to look me in the eyes right now. I think you're looking me in the eyes because you're wearing sunglasses. Yes. You're going to look me in the eyes and you're going to tell me you've never been put in handcuffs. Never handcuffs. Okay. I've, on my mother's life, never handcuffs. Have you been put into a police vehicle without choosing to go into it? Um, in South Africa? Yes. I know not in America because I mean... No, no, no. Nothing... I've, I've been arrested in another country, but not in South Africa. Where were you arrested? In Zimbabwe. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but that was because of filming without permits and all those kind of things. So that was a death, oh. one of those cool arrests. How long were you arrested for? It was a group of us. It was like six hours. But it wasn't like... You, did, they, did they put you in a cell? No, they didn't put us in a cell. Oh, they that's, put us, that's boring. That's yeah. not a, okay. So you've, so you've never boring. been in a jail cell? No. I've n I know that my character, like the things that I would do, you would assume that clearly this person has been inside. Yes. But I'm also a very crafty fellow. Hmm. Um, I'm offended now because... The implication is that those of us who have been in a jail cell are not crafty at all. You know what it is? It's I'm emotional. Offended. You know what I would say to you? I would say that you don't have good emotional EQ because... I think EQ is emotional intelligence. I don't think you have to say emotional EQ because I think it's... See, I, that, emotional, that, what you're doing now you would say emotional shows that you IQ. don't have good in, emotional <laughs> you would EQ just say, because you're making it all about yourself, all <laughs> these kind of things that Dr. Full would say. So what happened to you? So you're saying my lack of EQ is the reason that I ended up in a jail cell? Yes, because when you were in that situation where the handcuffs were about to happen, right. you didn't deal with the person as a person. Because that's what gets you out of trouble. Yes, is when you go wait. Let's just <laughs> let's just stop being policeman and person who is about is to be arrested. In yes, I spent a week in jail. Okay, and I will say as someone who spent a week in jail. I think you would actually do very well in prison. Yes, I also feel that. You you have a prison vibe to you as a person. Yes. And and I don't mean the violence part. Yeah. I, like I mean obviously like this is a part of prison we cannot escape. You seem like those kinds of people where like 40 years in there'd still be this man, he runs the library and the jail. He's like just doing his thing, you know, in the Should prison. I tell you my for my initial impression of prison. Yeah. I was in Uganda as a child. I remember because you, well, you grew up there, just for listeners just who, who don't know. Yes. David grew up in the Uganda. I don't want part. you to think he just went to Uganda as a child <laughs> no. randomly. I remember watching a Nelson Mandela movie mm -hmm. with Winnie Mandela. Yes. And um, Danny Glover was Nelson Mandela. Yes. And you know when you're a child, you're like, Nelson Mandela to me was now Danny Glover. Probably not the best Nelson Mandela to have, but... He was, he was your Nelson Mandela? Yes, he was my Nelson Mandela. Yes. And then I watched the movie, and then he was in prison... I remember asking my mother about it, and she told me this story. She was like, no, Nelson Mandela went to prison for freedom. The whole yeah, Nelson right. Mandela story. And then I asked about, like, what happens in prison. Then there's, like, no, you just are there. The people tell you what to do. And uh, She gave you the kids' version detention. of, yes. It's basically, ex it's it, like is a, it is, it's extended version detention. Of detention. I mean, they yes. call it detention, but yes. yes. And then I was like, oh, okay, cool. That seems like what I'm currently experiencing now. <laughs> so, th like, I did. I didn't jump to. I was like, oh, okay. So I'm sort of in prison. I'm like Nelson Mandela. Someone is telling me what to do all the time. They just tell me to go to bed when I'm not tired. Go yes. to bed. Lights out. My whole life seemed like prison. Yes, that is actually what prison is. Prison is that you lose your autonomy and you. The government is now your parents fundamentally. Yes. That's what prison is when you think... I mean, you, you as a child, you may have been simple, but it's almost like people when we do not think or you have displayed to us that you do not have the ability to control yourself in society because you insist on eating chips in the library. And so now what we're going to do is we will be your parents as the government. 
Yes. Which seems like a great idea when it started. But today, more and more people are saying prison as a concept needs to be abolished and the whole thing has become an abomination. Abolished is strong for me, but you cannot have this amount of people. A lot of people are pro-abolish. No, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, no, no, I, I, I'm with you because yes. like, because my thing is a lot of people use the word abolish and I never know what abolish actually means. But a lot of people go like, abolish ICE. So I remember I asked someone once, I said, what does abolish ICE mean? They were like, well, no, we should abolish immigration. What, what? Then I was like, so there's no enforcement. Then they're like, no, 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 I don't mean that. We've had border control before, but ICE oh, yes. as this police force hasn't always existed. Then I was like, oh, oh, I thought you meant no border security. They're like, no, why would I say that? Yes. But some people are saying that. So when some people say abolish prisons, I don't know what they mean. Because some people mean you, no one should ever go to jail for committing a crime. And then some people are like, no, we must abolish the system the way it exists right now. Yes, it, it seems self-evident. Right. But it obviously is not. But it seems like this mass incarceration is, is not good at all. Yes. It's I, all, I, will, I will tell you this. Just from averages. Yes. I will tell you this. If I had, and I know this is a strong statement to make, if I had a guarantee that I would not be beaten or sexually assaulted in prison and I would have access to the internet and a, a video game console... I could handle prison. That would defeat the point of prison. Why, why no, would it defeat no, the point not, of prison? Not the beat and sexually assaulted, but the good times part. What good times? This is just like basic, like in, in Norway and stuff, they you give just you access. added the internet. But they give you access to the internet in Norway? Yeah, that's also, that's a luxurious prison. In Norway, don't luxury? They, don't they let you There's go? There's some countries who would say getting getting blankets and beds is luxury. Yeah, so firstly, I'll just look at myself. I'll think to myself, when I think about the prison thing, I think, what do I think I should go to prison for? I, I do a lot, I base a lot of it on that. What so, do you think you should go to prison if for? If I murdered someone, I should go to prison. Okay. If I raped somebody, I should go to prison. Uh -huh. If I sexually assaulted them, I should go to prison. Uh -huh. if, how long should you spend in prison? The murder one, it depends on, in my own mind, I would yes. say it depends on how old the person is that I murdered. But that's Oh, that's interesting. The, but so wait, wait, so how would it work? So if you kill a five-year-old? Life. Okay, but then if you kill a 60-year-old? Uh, 18 years. Why? It depends on the lifespan. So what your metric would be is people must go to jail if for murder. The people must go to jail for as long as the other person had left in their lives. I, that's not what my metric is. That is... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm asking. That like, is... It's an interesting that idea. That is what I would naturally feel fair without any theory. Oh, okay. Like, if somebody just said that... I think, that, I think, it, I think yes. your idea is already better I than the system I drove into now. a 92-year-old. Yes. Then, then we go... Like, it would be very tough to be like, how long does a person get? That 92-year-old could have been on the way out. We don't know. No, no. 92-year-old, you just have to do community service. You need to... <laughs> I mean... All right. So you've got your ideas. I've got my ideas. I think now's the perfect time to bring in somebody with actual ideas to talk about what we could do to improve or change prisons in the world. We'll start with America, but I mean, I think these things could be applied everywhere. Our guest today is Danielle Sered, founder of Common Justice, the only alternative to prison program for violent criminals in the U.S. Welcome to the show. Thank Welcome. you. Thanks for having me. So let's start at the beginning. Do you think prisons should be abolished? I think it depends on what we mean by abolish. Aha, uh -huh, you see, right? this is what I was That's saying. That's right. right. So 
Prisons as they exist are a disaster for everybody. Like if we imagine our loved ones subject not only to that duration of isolation from us, but to violence, to torture, to abuse, to sexual violence, to all of it. I think any of us who could muster any compassion for anyone who would be there or love someone who was there would want to see them gone. But I think the mistake we make is that we either talk about prisons as being effective or prisons as being ineffective. And it's actually much worse than that. Prisons are productive of violence. And we know that the big drivers of violence are structural factors. They're poverty, they're inequity, they're terrible schools, they're those sorts of things. But on an individual level, like the reason one person might commit a crime when his next door neighbor who's similarly situated might not, Mm -hmm. those drivers are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. Four core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. And so we've built into our responses to violence exactly the things to generate them. It's like if I said to you, there's a house fire, I need your help, and you showed up at my front door with a Molotov cocktail. Like, it's not what's needed. And if any of us ask surprise— And it's also weird that I had one. It is weird. That's like a weird, like— Because I would have so many questions for you if you did that. I would be like, okay, first of all, did you make it when I called you? So when I said, did you have it ready? Did you start the fire? The person might say, in my defense, Danielle, they'd go, I'm here to fight fire with fire. (laughs) And then you would go, no, that doesn't work. And that's what you're saying about the prison system. Because some would say the whole point of the system is that it's supposed to be horrific so that nobody wants to go there. To some degree. And if that worked to produce safety, I think we'd actually have a moral question to answer. Then we'd have to ask ourselves, is inflicting these horrors on our fellow citizens worth it to produce the safety that we all otherwise deserve? Right. The problem is prison sucks at producing safety because it is characterized by exactly the things that generate violent behavior. Mm -hmm. It's what researchers call criminogenic, meaning two similarly situated people, one who goes to prison and the other who gets an alternative to incarceration or even gets away with it. Mm -hmm. The person who goes to prison is measurably more likely to commit more crime than the one who didn't. Yes. I think about it from a place of pragmatism. If I want to live in a society in which violence is uncommon, then what I want to do is I want to eradicate sources of violence. And if if we're honest about it, prison is a source of violence. And so we don't have to want to eliminate prisons because we dislike prisons. We can seek to eliminate prisons because we dislike violence. Why did America's prison rate shoot up the way it did? People always talk about America's high incarceration rate, but it wasn't always like that. Ronald Reagan, somewhere. Generally, it's good to just name Ronald Reagan when we ask (laughs) questions about why things are wrong in our country, because it's a good, it's like like on a multiple choice test, go Ronald Reagan. You'll usually be right. I will absolutely include him as one of the culprits. But by my estimates, on the day I was born, there were 443,850 people locked up in the U.S. Despite the adolescents I work with and their views, I'm not actually terribly old, which means we've (laughs) lived in a society where prisons are at a much smaller scale in most of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, people talk audacious about saying the 2.3 million people incarcerated, we're going to reduce that by 50 percent. And people think that's wild and bold. And that still concedes a threefold increase in most of our lifetimes. So the first piece is that to imagine a drastically reduced prison system 
we don't actually have to be all that visionary. We have to be a tiny bit historical. It means like the great project before us is can we remember 1975? Right. Right. Not can we envision 2048 and flying cars and all sorts of things. Right. Prisons grew because we made a set of policy decisions to punish things differently and more. And those policy decisions drove incarceration rates. The relationship between crime and incarceration is messy at best. Right. And the credit prison can take for the reductions in crime and violence is minimal. So in New York State, we have gone from a population in New York City, a detention population of 22,000 down to 7,000 and on target for 4,000. The state has reduced our number of people incarcerated in the last 30 years by half. And violent crime has gone down by more than half at the exact same time. So if prison produced safety, then reducing our use of prison would Would be mayhem in the street. And instead, like in Brooklyn, we are on the third straight year of the lowest number of homicides ever recorded in the borough's history. And so what we know who do the work of ending violence is that it's not just that that happened despite the reductions in our use of incarceration. We understand that we are safer in part because we reduced incarceration. Because there are some people who believe that you have to punish crimes. I mean, like, for instance, my friend Dave, who you've just met, some of us would go to a library. Some of us would go to a library and say the punishment for eating chips in the library would be shh. Dave, on the other hand, believes that you should be sequestered and beaten to a pulp. I mean, you heard him saying he wants to call the guard. Well, we have I it on a recording. I did hear something close That's to no, Is that, that what you said, was, Dave? Yes? It was troubling. I questioned whether I should even come into the studio. I actually would love to know the split between the terms. Like how many people are doing one year versus how many people are doing 30 years, you know, that kind of thing. Because... Does that play a role in some sort of way? So longer sentences only result in lower levels of recidivism. So people come home after longer sentences are less likely to commit new crimes. But that's because they got older. Like the single biggest factor that reduces the likelihood of violence. So not chip eating. Like some elders yes, eat just, chips in yeah, the library old. for no reason. Right. But most people age out of violence. Like as we get older, we commit less and less violence. It's just true. And yes. so we're on a trajectory toward just growing up, toward being people who resolve things in ways other than by causing harm. So do you think part of the reason people are then violence slash everything is just they're just young? Like it's just an age Youth thing. Youth is a huge part of it. So then why don't we just put young people in prison? Well, I guess that's what school was technically yeah. when I think about it. Well, I would have problem- to go there every day and then the people would force me and then, yeah, mm-hmm. I went and to prison. And the problem is everything about prison disrupts your otherwise natural evolution into becoming someone who won't commit violence. So there are some people in prison who manage to continue through that process of human evolution despite daily brutality that would challenge oh, any of us to keep growing. But otherwise, what happens is I'm on a trajectory toward becoming better, and then I'm but put in an environment. Could, prison could hamper that and Abs- make you violent. Prison does. It's not just that it could. It almost always does. Because you have and to shop people... in a toothbrush to stab someone. Mm-hmm. And well. you're surrounded by violence. The other thing is if you take a moment and you think of a time that you felt safe, and I've done this exercise with rooms of like hundreds of people, and you think of somewhere where you felt safe, like truly. Mm-hmm. I would say at home is where I felt the safest. I've done this in rooms with hundreds of people. People say at home, people say with my grandmother, people say with my neighbor whose house I used to go to after school. Sometimes people say alone. In hundreds of times, not one person has said in the presence of police or when I think about someone in a cage. 
And so we know our safety is produced in our relationship with each other. Our safety is produced in our proximity with one another. And the one thing prison always does is separate people from each other. Because everyone who goes to prison, even people who've caused serious harm, is someone else's person. Is someone's father, is someone's mother, is someone's loved one, is someone's child. And that relationship they have with one another is the thing that binds us to each other. It's the thing that when we are animated to commit violence that stops us from doing so, either because we have a feeling of being loved, because we have a feeling of responsibility to the people around us, because we have a feeling that we can ask someone else to protect us instead of having to protect ourselves. That makes sense. But let's take a moment to acknowledge, I feel the families of the people who have like things have happened to yeah, them. Yeah, let's talk about them. You know what I mean? Because, Absolutely. Because it, this is yeah. this is what does make it tough. So what I will Cause, say because I've been because I've been on yeah. both sides of this where I go, I completely understand when you have a family member mm-hmm. who is incarcerated, you want them to be treated like a human being. You want them to be afforded That's the opportunity right. to receive compassion and empathy. But what if you're the survivor of harm? But if you are the survivor right. of harm. Now you're in a world where you go, wait, so you want this person to not go to prison? So it's a perfect question. So at Common Justice, we divert serious and violent felonies, cases like stabbings, shootings, gunpoint robberies, real harm, not just Mm -hmm. kids stuff. And we do that in cases where the prosecutor and the victim of the crime agree. And so it's important to remember that fewer than half of victims in America call the police in the first place. That means they start at 50%, which is an F. Okay, wait, let's go back. Let's take Mm -hmm. a step back. So... Your program is geared towards giving people who have committed a crime the alternative to not go to jail. And instead of going to prison, they go through a program in which they make it right with the people they've hurt. Like my name is Earl, sort of. So, right. And so the only so way... So give me, give me an example of how you would make it right. So let's say, let's say Dave robbed me. So let's say Dave robs you. Okay. He you, robs me at gunpoint. So Dave, people, Dave... Okay, let's... Knife. Okay, so Dave robs me at knife point. Yeah. I'm, I'm at an ATM... And I withdraw a hundred dollars, and he robs right? you of it and it threatens comes, your it life. It comes in twenties. I, I wanted a few smaller notes, but it comes in twenties. As I turn to put the money into my wallet, Dave approaches me and goes, "Yo, give me your money. Yeah. Can I have a twenty? I'm hungry." Okay, fine. Can I have a twenty? I'm hungry. So I he, say, unless he wields a knife or a gun, he wouldn't come to us. But if he does that, he would. Right, but he's, wield, a he's wielding right. a knife. Machete. Okay, mm-hmm. he's wielding a machete. a machete. We've seen African. This. Yeah. You. So you say what? Can I please have a 20? I'm hungry. Machete. I'm sorry, my friend. I needed $100 to do something, so I cannot give you my 20. I also don't like that you saw that I have a 20 because now I feel like you were watching me when I was using the ATM. So I'm going to decline politely. Now what happens? Now Dave stabs me. Stabs you. And Mm -hmm. takes... The You're 20 right. that he wanted. He's a weird guy. Most people would take the 100. Yeah. But Dave stabs me. I was genuinely angry. Yeah. He also specifically wanted something that cost 19.95. Yes. And so That's what he needed. Dave stabs yeah. me, takes the 20, goes and buys the thing, comes back and gives me the 5 cents change. Yes. He's a very strange criminal, but he has done the yes. crime nonetheless. But when I come back, there happen to be police there. Yes, this is how you get arrested. Well, a so great they... quick court case yes. that has been solved the minute it happened. So and so Dave comes back. So let's, okay. so so now let's what say happens? first that the police aren't actually there because they usually aren't, which means you have a choice about whether you'll call the police or not. There is a 50-50 chance that you'll do that if we look at numbers in America. So Wait, a full are you being half serious? of people who are stabbed, shot at, robbed, beaten, don't call the police in the first place. They do not believe the police can deliver to them what they need, can deliver them closure, can deliver them safety, can offer them anything that will actually wow. work. Wow. Let's say you decide to call the police because you're newer here, you're still hopeful, whatever it is about you. 
There's another point in the process. Say he gets well, arrested. I'm calling the then. police because he came back. I thought he's coming right. back for the other 20s. I didn't know he was coming back to give me the five cents. And so then he he gets arrested. Mm-hmm. You then have a choice about whether to go to grand jury. So whether to testify in court and say, yes, he's the one who took my 20, though really 1995 yes. in right. the end. You decide to go to grand jury. Only half of people do that. So a full half of people who called the police even then are like, forget it. The system has nothing that is of value to me, even as you're still like changing the dressing on your wound mm-hmm. from where he stabbed mm-hmm. you. So you're in that 25%, arguably the jailingest subset of okay. victims that we'll find in this country. And you get a call from us. And we say to you, do you want this person who stabbed you in prison or do you want him in common justice? And I say, what is common justice? That's right. So first we'd say, what happened to you was wrong. How are you? What do you need? So we would talk to you as a I human being I need my 1995 first. back. Yes. That's exactly right. You know where you're never getting that 1995 back? From him in prison. Yes. Not once. Yes. You need to know why did he stab you? Why did he come back with the extra five cents? Uh-huh. Why didn't he take the other four twenties? Yes. Why Who did he pick you? Person? Was he watching you when you were at the ATM? Who the F does he think he is? Yes. You will get none of that if he goes to prison. Okay. Right? And those are the things that you want. Okay. Right? So when given the choice, 90% of the people we talk to choose common justice instead Mm -hmm. of prison. I think what's happening is something I should have known as a survivor myself. And I've the best way I've been able to describe it as a survivor, we would like wring out our bones as though the pain was stored in the marrow there if we could be freed from it. And we will feel fear that is so overwhelming that in the safety of our homes, in the arms of the people we love most, we will be unable to sleep and we will wake from that sleep with nightmares. Wow. And we will feel rage that makes us unrecognizable even to ourselves. And the one thing that trumps all of that is that we are pragmatic. At the end of the day, there are two things survivors can't stand. We can't stand the thought of going through it again. And we can't stand the thought of someone else going through what we went through. And so if we are given a choice between two options, we are going to choose the option that we think protects us from those things we can't stand. There is no one harder to persuade that incarceration will deliver on those things than someone who lives in a neighborhood where incarceration is common. Like for years, communities, particularly communities of color in the United States, have been left with the ravages of prison's failure to keep its promise of safety. So they don't don't even care about putting the person in that system because they have not seen any positive effects from that system. The system doesn't produce the results they not only want, but the results that they need. So what are you doing with the person when they're with you? So you have Dave who has stabbed Mm -hmm. me, stolen Mm -hmm. my money Mm -hmm. to buy food. Now now what happens? And then I tell you, we have a program in which he would meet with us daily, one-on-one for the first three months, okay. go through an intensive violence intervention curriculum, think about what he did, why he did it, uh-huh. what his underlying experiences of violence are. I have yet to meet anyone who's committed violence who hasn't also survived it. That doesn't excuse what people do. Yeah. Like the fact that I've been hurt, hurt doesn't hurt give people, me a free people. pass. Right, but hurt people um, hurt But people. it gives us insight into why it happens. And so I, we would also have to make sure that his pain had been acknowledged and valued so that he's positioned to acknowledge and value someone else's pain. We talked about where those things came from. We hold him accountable for coming on time, for doing what he needs to do, for becoming positively engaged in the community. If he doesn't do those things, what happens to him? We report it to court, and if he really continually doesn't do it, he goes to prison. He does the time he otherwise would have done if common justice didn't exist. And you, as the harm party, as the survivor in this, you know that going in. And then about three months in, we convene a dialogue, which you, the survivor, could attend if you want to or have someone attend in your place, where we talk about what happened. I'll send someone in my place. I don't trust this guy. 
You probably wouldn't. Once you heard yeah. about what the circle's like, you might be like, I don't trust him, and I want to be the one to tell him to go F himself. Okay. Like, it depends. You could land in either place. And you get the answers to those questions that you never would have gotten if he were locked up about mm-hmm. why he did it, what it was about, why he brought the change back, was he watching you at the ATM, all of that. Right. It turns um, out he was really hungry because he had started this new weird ketogenic diet where he, <laughs> he fasts for 12 hours at a time and then didn't realize his blood sugar le- levels would crash the way they did. And then it made him a manic person and yeah. he didn't know about this. And then he stabbed me. Yeah. So now we have this dialogue. This has been three months. And, and then you what have happens? a dialogue where you acknowledge what happens and you reach agreements about what he can do to make things as right as possible. Okay. And so agreements we've had are things like get a job, pay me back, uh-huh. do community service. That's something that means something to me. Okay. Work on your stuff so that you don't hurt people ever again. Do something that benefits um, a cause I believe in deeply. Go to school so I believe you will become somebody wow. with a different future than but this. Now, but now, let's say I ask Dave to do something like that. So mm-hmm. I go, okay, I now want you to start eating pasta. Uh, mm-hmm. Pasta. Because I want you to never be hungry again. Mm-hmm. How long does he have to do this for? So the program's another year. So for the next okay. year, so he for the next year, pasta. we monitor that he eats. That he eats when pasta. Because I, I, I want him to eat five meals a day. I don't want this guy hungry five ever again. Five meals a day of pasta. Okay. And if he agrees to it, he'll do that. And he'll do a number of things. So in one case, for example, um, and this is not a typical agreement, but it matters that ones that emerge would be particular to who the two of you were. Of course, of course. And so, because we have not yet had a pasta agreement, and yes. we would, because that's your thing. Right. Um, and prison doesn't care what your thing is. Of prison doesn't right, know who right. you are. They punishes for, them. Prison forgot yes. your name. Homogenous prison doesn't know punishment. about you. Yes. You're nobody. Um, to us, you're somebody, and so pasta it is. But in one case, one of our... We call them harmed parties and responsible parties because we know that what happened to them or what they did is not the sum total of who they are, but it defines a relationship to an event that comes with obligations or mm-hmm. needs. And so our harm party worked in kitchens in a restaurant. He was paid in cash. He was on his way home and he was robbed and brutally beaten by someone who took that money from him. So not terribly unlike your scenario. And he suffered what many survivors suffer. So he had post-traumatic stress symptoms. So he was had difficulty sleeping. He felt nervous anytime he went outside. Mm-hmm. He would say anytime even a little old lady came up behind him, his mind would race and his heart would race and his stomach would turn. And his life was upended by it. He started taking taxis home from work, which cost him half of his week's wages. He stopped doing anything right. fun or worthwhile in his life. He was changed by it really dramatically. And in that process with the person who hurt him, We have a little talking stick, and you can talk when you have it, and you don't when you don't, so that people are not interrupting one another. Mm -hmm. And when it came to the responsible party, he said, every young man older than me in my family served at least 11 years in prison. And my brother, or served at least 10 years, my brother served 11 years, and each of those years he won the prison boxing league championship. And my brother's the person who taught me how to fight. And that night on the street, I showed you the wrong end of that. But my brother's also the person who taught me how to defend myself. And if you want, I'll teach you that too. And the stick goes around to the harm party who says, I'd love that. And because I don't have the stick, I can't be like, whoo. So the person, let's just recap for the yeah. people. So the person who beat this person up I'll is, show you how says, to- I will show you how to block for next time yeah. if yeah. I so we go, meet you So we again. go to a martial arts studio because we know what we know and know what we don't know. So we had a trained professional there. And first, the young man who committed the robbery um, was standing as though he was being restrained and was modeling how one gets out of that kind of restraint. And then they switched positions, and the survivor is standing, being held by the same person who held him that night, the person who is the source of all this trauma that's been reverberating through his life for this year. And first he's holding him lightly, 
and the young man breaks out of it. Then he holds him stronger and he breaks out. And eventually he's holding him with his entire strength and this young man repeatedly breaks free of his grip. The next day, that young man, the survivor, called me on my phone and he said, Danielle, I'm calling to tell you nothing happened. And I said, could you say more? And he said, I just walked by a six foot four man and nothing happened. Meaning his heart didn't race and his mind didn't race and his stomach didn't turn. And if we have a pathway that can deliver him from that pain and deliver him back into the best parts of his life, and at the same time ensure that the person who hurt him never hurt anybody else again, like on what moral basis do we send that other young man to prison? To that point, then let me ask you this. What is your recidivism rate within your program? So fewer than eight versus versus like prison. So fewer than eight percent of our participants have been terminated from new crimes on our watch. Prisons, depending on how you measure, is somewhere between a quarter and sixty percent. Good lord, that's a big difference well, in people it, going back and committing the crimes. Yeah, it also depends on what you're attempting to do. So if you're attempting to rehabilitate people, it's one thing. If you're aiming for revenge, it's another thing. Mm. Some right. people are like, we just want revenge. I don't care whether you come back and do this, but I just want revenge for what you did to me. If our prison system were honest and said we did it for revenge, we do it for revenge, even though we know it's going to render our society right. more dangerous. It's, it's hard because you have... That, at least that's honest, right? And we can Whereas contend with that. Whereas right now they say that. it's rehabilitation, but and it's not. And they say it's rehabilitation, and they say it's done in the name of survivors. But they don't mean the full range of survivors. So almost every poster for victim services almost every law named after a victim is named after a white woman like me, right? Like we are the prototypical victims in the United States, right? We are the Carolyn Bryants who Emmett Till allegedly whistled at. We are the like original... Which she then said afterwards never happened, mm -hmm. but yes. yes. Yeah. And we imagine backwards to like our founding of our criminal justice system that involves some notion of the protection of white women's purity and the protection by white men of that, of that and of their property, right? The truth is that a young man of color is ten and a half times more likely than I am to be robbed or assaulted. But it's my face on all those posters. It's my right, rage in right, all the right. stories. And so if we had a truly victim-centered criminal justice system, it would be accountable primarily to 16 to 24-year-old young people of color, many of them young men. That is not the group of people to whom our system feels accountable mm -hmm. for producing safety. So when getting back to your question about how we got here in the scale of incarceration, the victims who wanted revenge found a great marriage with the politicians who wanted right. to be reelected. Right. The victims who wanted something else found nothing and were largely like ignored or even pathologized right. for wanting something else. Like one of our early participants was considering it and he's like, you know, fuck him, but fuck jail. And at the end of the day, I think that's actually a deeply reasonable response to harm, right. right? It is both that what happened to him was wrong. Mm -hmm. He didn't have to feel forgiveness or mercy or compassion for the person who did it. And at the same time, the solution being presented to him was equally unsatisfactory. It's, it's, it's powerful when you put it like that, especially, Dave, you know, to what you said. Imagine if you phrased it that way to people. If you said, hey, your loved one has been robbed or murdered you have been hurt, would you like us to help this person do it to somebody else, in mm -hmm. effect? I think everybody would say no. Mm -hmm. And essentially, that's what's happening with the prison system. Some may say, Danielle, you're one of those white women who's all academic and philosophical about the whole thing, 
but if crime ever happened to you, you wouldn't think the same. So I'm a survivor myself. I grew up in Chicago at the height of what we called the crack epidemic then and really was the beginning of mass incarceration kind of getting its sea legs. And I saw people going away for harming people, though often we were silent about where people were going and why because there was so much shame and stigma attached to it. Mm -hmm. And most people came back worse for it. Their families were surely worse for it. But I remember thinking, well, surely this must be better for the people they hurt because that's why we say we're doing this in the first place. But then I paid attention to my own experience as a survivor. I've buried loved ones when I was far too young to bury them and they were far too young to die. I've survived sexual assault. I've survived other forms of violence. And not only did far fewer of us want prison, but even those who wanted it and got it, it never healed us. That's the deal we've made in America. We have made a promise to survivors that we will give them something that will heal them, knowing full well that it will not. And the thing we know at Common Justice is not philosophical. Like, we've been doing this in practice for a decade. We know that it works. Like, we're not talking about ideas. We're talking about our experience. The thing we know is you can never predict in the absence of options what someone will choose in the presence of options. Like if there's a crappy hamburger stand in the middle of the desert and there's nothing for 200 miles and you see a long line and your conclusion from it is that everyone loves burgers and those are the best burgers around, like you've made a mistake. And so what you're trying to do is give people the option to not be a criminal. You're mm-hmm. giving people the option to get healing as a survivor and you're giving mm-hmm. society an option, I guess, to heal itself. That's I think that's... That's a beautiful place to be because you, you're right. If you just have the hamburger stand, everyone's going to be getting hamburgers. And that, that's what they say, like criminal communities. It's like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. It's a community that only has access to crime. That's right. right? Yes. So you have a criminal community, but it's not a criminal community. They only have mm-hmm. access to crime. And so it's, everyone's buying the hamburgers. But if you open the hamburger stand, mm-hmm. you open a taco stand, you open, you know what I mean, the chip stand, everything, then you're going to have mm-hmm. different lines, people doing mm-hmm. different things, fewer people having hamburgers, and then Dave eating chips that he takes to the library where he brings his own books. Thank you so much, Thank you. Danielle, for joining us on the show. Thank this was so really much. illuminating. Wow, is all I can say. On Second Thoughts with Trevor Noah is presented by Luminary Media and Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Katya Kumkova with editorial oversight by Leon Nafak and Andrew Parsons. Terence Bernardo is our audio engineer. The show was recorded at CMD Studios in New York City. I'm Trevor Noah, joined always by my good friend, David Kibuka. We'll catch you next time. If you're enjoying this conversation, join us over on Luminary for a full catalogue of episodes from the Trevor Noah podcast, plus even more coming September 2nd. Go to luminary.link slash Trevor Noah to subscribe and save up to 40% when you sign up for an annual plan. Not available in all markets and subject to local currency. Terms apply.